It went by several names over the course of its more than 100 years in operation, but you probably would know it as the Dozier School for Boys. For too many children, many of them sent to the facility in Mariana, Florida for insignificant, even spurious offenses, it was a place of abuse, torture, and death. That history has been discussed on this podcast and in many other forums, and it's too much to delve into right here. There are links included with this episode detailing its grim existence should you want to research the school further. University of South Florida anthropologist Aaron Kimmerly was at the forefront of bringing the atrocities committed at the Dozier School to wider public attention. Although as she describes in her stunning account, We Carry Their Bones, her efforts weren't universally appreciated, and it was a long, grueling process unearthing the stories of boys who never left the facility. She joins us today to discuss her book and her work more generally. I'm Christopher Nank, and welcome to the Florida Book Club. I'm here with Erin Kimmerly, professor of anthropology at the University of South Florida and author of the gripping 2022 book, We Carry Their Bones, which she'll discuss with us today. So uh, welcome to the Florida Book Club, Erin. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we were just talking before we started recording about, you know, kind of your approach to this work, you know, um, in general. And then, you know, I wanted to ask you about some specifics, you know. I had mentioned, you know, much like when you see a documentary film, you know that there's hours upon hours of footage and research that has to be condensed into 90 minutes and and everything. And I got the impression with this book that there's so much, you know, in the uh, work of days and months and years that that were put into this that you had to uh, put down. So, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like what the process was like writing it, not just, you know, how you pick and choose what tones you want to strike and what stories and people and, and material you want to focus on. But also, you know, emotionally, too, like like sort of the the emotional vibes you wanted to get, because um, you alluded later in the book to how angry a lot of this work made you. And I felt that, too, you know, along with, you know, <laughs> frustration, despair about the human race, that sort of thing. And uh, <laughs> stuff like that. And I, I didn't um, I wondered. So both it's sort of a two part question, obviously, you know, both what was your approach on a craft level and then, you know, as I said, what what kind of emotions did you want readers to get out of that? Like some some kind of constructive feeling, maybe as opposed to just you know despair or anger. Right. Yeah. Thank you. I, you're right. I mean, there was you know uh, years of work and research that went into this project, and there is so much to the story because of all of the history, you know, all the different people involved, their stories, um, the work that we did, and you know later on and the excavation. So that was really a challenge to try to figure out what to include and how to tell the story so that it didn't, you know, just feel like an encyclopedia of facts or, you know, it's like this definitive history, which it certainly could have read that way as well. So it it took a long time. um, And I had a lot of really good, uh, I feel like editorial help and help from the the book agent to, you know, to kind of figure out like how to tell the stories. I'm used to, you know, scientific writing, academic writing, and uh, it it just it takes a while to kind of get your you know your brain and your and your vibe to feel like how can how can you um, you know write in a different fashion. And so I feel like once once I started to figure that out, I really loved it. Actually, really enjoyed it a lot. Um, but it was it was a process. 
Yes, because there's so many, as, as we alluded to, so many people whose stories you told and there, you know, a lot of family history, a lot of, you know, in, in a way, a kind of genealogy, too, and and right. sort of a, a profile historically of this town and this region as well. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much, you know, that's encompassed in this very emotionally pulverizing book. And, and you know, like I said, I I was a little bit intimidated approaching it because I assumed like it was just going to make me feel angry and 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 despairing and and you know those are emotions that you know I I think when they're just by themselves you know you you they're kind of undesirable but but you also talked a lot in here about you know how some of the survivors uh, from the Dozier school and from you know the families how they came away from this with a surprisingly kind of positive attitude in some ways, like having that closure. So, I mean, was, was that part of your process too, like wanting people to feel something positive or to raise awareness or to maybe make them think about conditions in, you know, other detention centers or, 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 you know, themes like that, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, you know, this type of work and this particular story definitely, you know, can depress the room, right? Like I've, I've given, you know, lunch talks and things. And I always tell people they're really brave and invite me to lunch because I don't want to just make it like this depressing, you know, sad story. And so um, I don't, you know, I think that the way I look at it is even, you know, on those most challenging days and, you know, the sort of existential crisis that it can cause sometimes um the you know those families and um the people that i met and worked with in that capacity were just such a positive um force and so important and you know it because it was for them and it meant so much to them and i think that's the point of it and so you know anytime you have this sort of historic justice issue as well it's like why you know why are we doing this and and who are we doing it for and so that's that was really the driving force yeah and you mentioned historical justice which i i really like because you you mentioned at several points in the book and and some people some of the survivors and family members that you talked to had said i mean the near impossibility of actually prosecuting anyone for uh what had happened here and that 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 has to be you know that was frustrating to me reading, but, but again, you know, like you said, it's like when you view it in that different context, that this is just about, you know, restoring these remains to the family or to provide them some closure or to, you know, put some kind of, 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 of uh, closure is not the right word I want to use in this context, but something, you know, about this period in history and about this place, you know, even if it's just a memorial or acknowledgement or anything, you know, it's like it, it ended on a positive note in that way. Yeah. And I think that's, um, a really important piece of it it's really it's almost like the acknowledgement right to say to acknowledge what had happened to you know that's where you're kind of you know discovering those truths or those facts or figuring it out and and i think that's what people long for I, I, years ago i read something about grief and how um it really you know only that like if you're grieving something it only starts when there's really an acknowledgement and acceptance of what happened and i think that's for families of missing persons and really this dozier story is we don't think about like a modern day missing person story but that's essentially what it is is you know these families lost their brothers children you know uh uncles and so forth and and just never knew what happened and so um it leaves you in kind of this like stuck place of like, what do you, you know, how do you move forward or how do you reconcile it when you don't even know really what happened? Mm -hmm. 
And relative to that, you know, when, when, when you phrase it like that, you know, it, it's and to me, I'm, you know, a receptive audience. So it's kind of like, you know, I, I'm all for that. It just reading about the resistance that you you faced, though, you know, socially, politically, like socially within the community itself. I mean, and that seemed like something you weren't used to because you've worked on a lot of, you know, alongside a lot of police investigations and aided them. And, you know, you're kind of used to seeing, you know, the law enforcement infrastructure as being an ally and and, and sort of the community wanting your services. So, I mean, that had to be, you know. A, a little bit, uh, as you say in the book, you know, a, a little bit daunting. But I mean, I also wondered, you know, from one point of view, could that be understandable on the point on the part of a community? You know, it like it touched such a deep nerve in Mariana and in Jackson County and how current residents, you know, even though they might not have been directly involved with any of the things that happened in the school, you know, it d- didn't want to, you know, acknowledge the decades of atrocities that happened there. You talked about uh, Dale Cox, the local historian there. and and you know, you alluded to this sort of shame that the community as a whole might feel if this all turned out to be true and like they had a stake in that. And, you know, there's a great quote that I had that, you know, no facts or data will change a belief that is valued and nurtured, you know, when you have. And I, I took that to mean if you have a certain viewpoint of your community and you you like it, you know, you love it and you invest yourself emotionally in it and then to, you know, hear these things about it, you know, it's it's like you worry that you're going to be defined that way forever because, you know, like, for instance, like when you think of Los Angeles, no one just immediately thinks of just the L.A. riots from the 90s, for instance. You know, there's so much else that's happened there. But a place like Jackson County, you know, it seemed like throughout there was this implication that a community this small could end up just being defined by this one thing. So, um, you know, it's it's unlikely to be known for any larger things like unlike like a bigger metropolis or something so i don't know did you have any like sympathy or empathy for that even as you were facing this resistance from some of the local community that that you know it's understandable that they might feel this way yeah and i think that you know because you know the whole thing is such a process right and there were a lot of people in the community who were supportive and who were helpful um at the same time as you know as those who weren't and so you're trying to always sort of navigate that and negotiate it i i think that i had um you know i think early from the early you know stages we tried to frame this in a way that wouldn't you know, it wasn't about blame, right? It wasn't about even prosecution. It was really about let's just figure this out and give the families access and the you know and get these help them exercise their rights. And home. so, you know, in my mind, it was a way that like everybody could kind of rally behind that because it wasn't so oppositional or you know it wasn't pointing blame and so forth. I think that um, what you know surprised me, I would say, looking back and in, in terms of how much resistance there was and for the amount of time that it continued right so it wasn't just like initially there's resistance and then people are like okay let's just you know let this happen and get it over with i mean that just continued um until the very end but i think that um you know there's a number of reasons for it and and part of it is their town image but i think part of it is just knowing the personal family ties you know so many you know people that worked at that school worked there for generations often you know and um from you know for most of that history families actually the 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 staff families lived on the campus as well and so um you know i think that's that's a part of it 
Mm-hmm. It, you know, okay. So, and leading from that, I was one of the things that you don't really get into because I, I think it's a little bit out of the purview of the book, you to a degree. But you know, I was really stunned at just the thought, the idea. It made me think how full-grown adults could seemingly relish torturing children like this. I mean, that was one of the things I was like trying to think, like, what kind of person does that? When you're talking about who worked at these places and how they were employed, you know, the kinds of people who worked at Dozier and their histories. As I said, it wasn't really a primary focus. But again, there's an implication about the worst of humanity there. I mean, I, I wondered, I, and and as, you know, uh, anyone familiar with your work, you know, uh, might know you've, you've uh, worked on a lot of projects where you've seen the uh, worst results of, of humanity's darkest impulses, you know, um, we could say, but I mean, did this kind of you know, shake your faith in humanity at all or make you consider, I mean, whether a thirst for violence is somehow common among humans or more than we'd like to acknowledge. I mean, and and um, and 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 as as I talked about before, the near impossibility of actually holding any of these people accountable. You know, I mean, I don't know if that that sort of gave you any kind of feeling of nihilism or cynicism on this particular uh, endeavor. Well, I think that, you know, I think one of the things that um, struck me about this is how that school, the Dozier school, was such, you have to think of it like as its own culture, right? And so part of what would happen over the over the years, right, over a century, where there would be huge calls for reform by politicians, Mm -hmm. by the media response, right? Journalists, congressional hearings, right? And yet it never changed ultimately. I mean, the name would change or there'd be superficial, you know, changes here or there, right? The policy changed. You couldn't hogtie children anymore in the eighties, right? So, but, but nothing's um, of any substance really changed. And that's because the culture itself. And I think why I say that is it's um, not to say it's a culture of violence, but there's a, like a certain disregard, I think, where you, if your view is, and you sort of get, you know, enculturated into this view that these, you know, children are inmates. They're here as criminals to be punished. And punishment includes corporal punishment, that that's acceptable. And um, and that's, you know, I just I think that there's a deeper thread there is what I'm getting at. And so um, and that's why ultimately, too, it was very hard to break that or to change that because the people didn't change. So the culture never changed. And that's why you had um, that sort of um, physical violence, you know, continue throughout throughout its history. Yeah. You have a thicker skin than me, though, because I mean, (laughs) reading some of these like really forensic details of the wounds that you'd see on the bones or even saying like, okay, these haven't fused yet. So this had to be a child of this age. And it's it's, you know, I think by necessity, you had to write that fairly dispassionately, you know, just to avoid like really putting your emotions on there. But again, you know, to me, it was like the the implications were like gut punches of that. So I, I liked your answer. Thank you. I guess that's what I'm saying. Like that makes me, you know, not like despair that you know uh, uh, about <laughs> about human nature. I guess you know when you when you put it that way. And 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 you're right. You did. Um, you mentioned that a lot in the book that there was this mentality. I guess not just in the administration of the school, but in in some of the community that these were inmates. That these were, you know, there, you, you quoted the one. I can't remember her name, but but how she just bluntly stated they were throwaways. These are people. And then and then you had this right. follow up that you know I. I can't believe we as a society would just throw away children no matter their circumstances. So, but it's, it's, you made a really good point. I like that about how you can be socialized to view 
them, you know, not as like somebody's kids necessarily, but as inmates in a prison almost, you know, and, and how that sort of le- maybe lessens the threshold of sympathy you might have for them. So, yeah, we I saw that a lot. That's that's just really came through. And um, I think it kind of comes back to even, you know, like how like the boy hunting, right? So boys would run away and they would be hunted down and, and you know, le- like in terms of legal terms, it was lawful for them. uh, to be shot at or killed they were basically escaped you know fugitives that's that's the what they were and so um it's it's in no way a justification it's just to say like how did this happen like what what was happening and so um i think you have to um kind of view it in that lens if you're trying to just say like how did this actually happen and come to any sort of understanding Like me, you're a transplanted Midwesterner. You know, I know hey. <laughs> not Florida natives, yes. not native Floridians. I've been here quite a while though, too. Um, and there's a great passage early on, I think, where you're about to go to a press conference and you're kind of imagining what you might say, but because of sort of, you know, the PR protocols and just, you know, a sense of decorum and professionalism, you know, you wouldn't say. But you 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 start by imagining, you know, this popular image of Florida, you know, like when you think of Florida, you might think of, you know, beaches and theme parks and everything. But, you know, there's this going on here, too. And then there's later on one of your colleagues or someone you're corresponding with said, you know, you don't have to look too far in Florida to find injustice, which uh, it, it's funny on this podcast, you know, that's in the works that I've read and talked about. That's a common theme as well. Uh, sadly, I'm sure it's true of a lot of states, but um but I, I'm wondering, you know, as as a transplant here, you know, what is or was your overall impression of the state relative to, you know, this project? But also, how did working on this case maybe potentially affect? I mean, did this affect your view of the state at all? I mean, or and and how you wanted to, you know, fold that into the book? I wonder because you know that passage is early on in the narrative. Right. I mean, it's like within the first ten pages, so it's almost like it's setting a tone in a way. Right. Well, yeah, I think I think kind of two things with that. So on the one hand, um, you know, this whole project was a huge learning endeavor for me in terms of uh, Florida history and uh, history of the convict lease system in general. I mean, I knew about it, but I'd never really studied it or certainly deep dived into it as I did here. And so I think probably a lot of us who don't come from Florida, or maybe even some would do, you know, initially you don't really think about Florida as, um, you know, such a pivotal um, and tumultuous place in the entire civil rights movement um, and how much uh, race and um, the era of segregation, you know, had that effect, not just then, but today, you know, that, that was one of the things is how, people and society and how we're all affected so much today without maybe realizing unless you step back and think about that. And so, um, you know, it was, like I said, just a huge learning curve for me. And I think, and then the other, the other sort of part of it that I was going to mention what you said is, um, yeah, I had not done press conferences before to, you know, to that a few interviews, but nothing like what <laughs> what I was stepping into with this. And so, you know, there's always, um, and I think part of it was just not having that experience, but, you know, this um, sort of 
desire to always be the scientist and be, you know, very, not, I don't want to say professional, but very like, you know, accurate, right. And exactly what you say, it used to give me a lot of stress because um, you're getting asked questions and it was like, well, if I don't have like the perfect response, just in the sense of like the most sort of accurate. And, um, and that was, it just took a while to be comfortable with that and learn that, um, okay, we can have a discussion about this and not, you know, not every word, mm-hmm. right, hinges on <laughs> like the scientific validity of your statement. And so, you know, so part of it was that too, it's just learning to be comfortable with, um, with the sort of uh, media aspect of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, this is, this is a related question sort of textually too. I was, I was curious, you know, like, you mentioned, and I'm kind of the same way. A lot of my writing is academic. I mean, you know, I like this is a forum where I can talk a little more casually, I suppose. And and I hope this is a little bit less, uh, you know, you're on the spot than a press conference. <laughs> you know, clearly not the same state. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know? No one's going to read anything or like hold you accountable for your words here. But but as I said, I you know we mentioned a little bit before this combined forensic research, history, and and personal memoir. You know. To, to a degree. And, um, you know, we talked about like what you needed, what you felt you needed to foreground and what you needed to um, kind of, you know, either prioritize or, or step back on at certain points and in what context. And I'm kind of curious, like what you've learned as a writer and as an academic or an anthropologist or as a person as a result of this, not just, you know, everything with the Dozier School, but, but writing this book specifically. Well, I, I think it's helped me become a much better writer. I enjoy it a lot, a lot more. I like that tone. I'm, you know, working on another, pro, you know, project that's more in that tone than the traditional um, academic press, and so I'm excited about that. I think that, um, you know, it was important to me to to figure out how to tell the story. Um, in a way that was outside of the academic presses. That's that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to, I think, reach a bigger audience, but not like a larger audience, but like a different audience. And to make, uh, I, it was like, how do you make the average person care about this, right? Because I thought if I just write this like sort of historical text about convict leasing, there's a group of people who are going to love that, but that's mm-hmm. but not, you know, most people are not going to That's a that. niche audience. Right? <laughs> like historians. And, yeah. So I was like, how do you, you know, because I do think that this story itself, like it, like we had so much public support and that was critical to ultimately getting the state to give us permission. Like had the public not been behind it, I think that, you know, the political support wouldn't have been there and so it's like i know you know this story does you know sort of capture um you know the interest and, and the empathy of of so many people and so i want you know i wanted to share then that history and that story um in a way that people could feel like hey i relate to this because i think at the end of the day that's the thing right it's about grief and justice and hope and things that we we actually can all relate to and so um that that was the goal anyway <laughs> no you you did that great that's the thing it's so it's it's so accessible in that way you know as i said and and you know, recreating dialogue and uh, the scenes about the, the the 1914 fire that initially destroyed school, which was a big focal point of some of your um, excavations and discovery that had a lot of literary flair in it. You know, I, I, I mean, as as kind of devastating as that scene was, it was written, I thought, very well. And, you know, and, and as you said, that's not the kind of writing as academics you get to do very often. But right. but as you said, it's something that's going to open it up to a larger audience. You know, it's not like, as you said, a dry encyclopedic 
recitation of facts, citations, you know, cited research and things that, you know, peer reviewed work tends to be. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, you look at just across the board, you know, forensics, cold case, mystery. I mean, that's such a huge part of pop culture, whether it's, you know, I mean, true crime novels to, to, you know, TV shows and things like that. And so, I mean, I think because it does lend itself, there's a lot of drama um, and people, I think, you know, have this ethos towards like, we want justice in the end. We want the, um, you know, the victim to have some sort of um, restitution. And so it's, you know, in that way, it's, you know, it's sort of easy to, take that license because it's just there already. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I was going to ask you about the chapter titles because I do, I, I mean, as a like sort of literary nerd, I think those are sort of key. I'm into titles and epigrams and things <laughs> like that. But so I think, you know, I don't know how much thought or craft or, or anything consideration went into those, but I liked how those, they set kind of a tone for each chapter. So. Oh, thank you. I like that too. I like it to be kind of a, I don't know, a little foreshadow or, or a quote or something that really will bring it home. So, yeah. yeah. So, okay. Well, we'll get out of here on this. This is, um, mm -hmm. and before I ask you what else you have going on, you alluded to a project that you're uh, working on, but uh, have you read any other works based on or explicitly about the Dozier School? I'm thinking of like novels like The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, which I think is just one of the most fantastic Florida novels I've ever read. Um, or uh, Places That Hold by John Davis Jr. It's uh, he's a poet that won the uh, won a bronze medal in the Florida Book Awards for poetry, which was a lot of poems based. Uh, he actually had a poem in there, uh, Laundry Duty 3 p.m. that uh, references an incident you talked about in the book where a boy was uh, inside a uh, laundry tumbler, a drying machine. Um, and and you, you mentioned, a, I can't remember the title of it off the top of my head, but a, 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 I don't know if it was a novel or a uh, nonfiction book in there that I had never heard of uh, that was um, you mentioned in uh, We Carry Their Bones. But so um, I, I, I guess I'm curious, like, have you read any of those books? Uh, if not, do you plan to do so? Or and, and what do you think? This is a much broader question there. But overall, what do you think books and works like this can accomplish in terms of memori themselves memorializing, you know, this awful history? No, that's a good point. I'm, you know, a huge book lover. I think that books are the way to memorialize it. I think, you know, unless it's written, it's gone. <laughs> so, right. And so I, you know, I, I do think that that's um, important and I, you know, would love to see more, you know, academics and scientists also, you know, ultimately put their work in, in a literary form that will open it up basically. Um, but yeah, I did, you know, uh, well, Nickel Boys came out after uh, I had finished this, but even through it, you know, a lot of the White House boys had also written books, their own personal stories and memoirs. And so, yeah, there's a number of them, um, uh, three or four. I can send you the titles if, if you'd like, but I, Absolutely. I found those really, um, you know, powerful and, and helpful. And, and um, so, yeah, I don't, I, I love to read. So I'm, I'm all, you know, anything I can find to, uh, whether it's the academic side or the, or the literary side, you know, on these topics, that's what I'm trying to dive into. No, that's a great point. And, and yeah, I, uh, uh, I remember in graduate school, it was, I was in a sociology class of all things. I was taking this American studies program at FSU, but um, there was a great point. Uh, this author, um, 
Gary Fine made about like how how it was making it was a point about the Spanish Civil War, but he was saying that you know bullets and bayonets may like win the day, but ballads and songs will win history or something. He was referring to like how the way in which something is remembered ultimately. It's like the fascists may have won the Spanish Civil War, but no, you know, history and art don't view them as the winners, you know, in a way. So it's right. like it was a really interesting statement about how you're saying things like memorials and novels and poems and books, you know, really are, are, are the ways in which we record and remember, you know, some of the worst parts of history. Yeah, so. it's true. And just you asked about the, the sort of other projects. One of the things I've been working on is um, looking, looking for and trying to identify unmarked burial grounds in Hillsborough County, uh, oh. specifically, um, well, any that are unmarked, sort of lost, forgotten, erased cemeteries. And, and there's um, been a lot of those we've read about lately. What about my old neighborhood yeah. by Robles Park? I remember. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Well, yeah. Robles Park, I know it's uh, down south of Martin Luther King Drive. I used to live right down there. So I remember oh, hearing yeah. that they had found, uh, you know, an old cemetery under there. I don't know right. if they used ground penetrating radar or how they found it. but uh, I think they ultimately did. But um, yeah, we so in the course of doing that, we found um, over 40 unmarked burial grounds around the county. And so part of like, you know, to, under, to understand that and put it in context, I've been doing all this research uh, on, you know, specifically the, you know, Hillsborough County and the history and the population structure. Because if you want to, you know, if you want to find burials, you have to know who you're looking for, even if it's in this contextual sense of like, you know, who was living here. And it's what struck me about it, the point I'm making to what your comment was, is that you know, there's this sort of written narrative um, of Florida's history, Tampa Bay history, and yet there are so many sort of people and groups of people and things that were happening that's not ever really part of that story. And you see that that's just because of who wrote the story, right? Who wrote the, <laughs> the history down. It's kind of, you know, their story. And so um, it's been really interesting, labor intensive, but anyway, to, <laughs> to figure that out and, and try to try to bring, you know, the rest of those communities back into the fold. All right. Well, I, are we going to see the, the written results of that work anytime soon? <laughs> the Tampa, the uh, right now we're gearing up to put together actually an exhibit, uh, an art exhibit at USF about it. That's um, a lot of, you know, maps and photos and, and the sort of basic history of it. But yeah, hopefully after that, uh, something will follow. That's, that's a narrative. Okay. Anything else going on that you, uh, I mean, I know you probably have classes in the fall, just like me coming up, but <laughs> anything awesome. else going on you've got coming down the road or uh um, this is your chance to plug anything. Is it? <laughs> well, see, the, I've been deep into the cemetery project, so I okay. think once once that's together, um, we'll be good. We are we are doing missing person missing in Florida Day in October. It's a free, open public event, and um, it's really a DNA drive. To, a lot of a lot of families of the missing have fallen through the cracks over the last few decades, and so this is a way to help them get back into that system and hopefully um, find the person the family member that they're looking for. So I'll, I'll keep you informed because it's, it's a great event and um, we did it in 2016, but it's, so it's long overdue. Yeah, absolutely. That, that sounds like very necessary and, and timely and, and desired work. Probably. I'm sure you'll get a lot of positive feedback from that. 
So yeah, hopefully good results. Every time we've done events like that in the past, we've we've seen cases get solved. It's really just often about getting the right people together, making those connections. And so this is a venue to do that. So. All right. Well, you should be very proud of We Carry Their Bones. It's a, it's a very important book, I think, and adding to a corpus of work about a, you know, a chapter in Florida history that we should keep in the public mind. So uh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. OK, well, Aaron Kimmerly, you're now a member of the Florida Book Club. Thank you. Thank you for attending this meeting of the Florida Book Club. There are links on our website with this episode to purchase We Carry Their Bones and to Aaron's personal website, and also some links more generally explaining events at the Dozier School. Some of the more specific events and the people that we talked about in this episode, well, read the book. (laughs) Remember to support your local independent bookstores and public libraries, And remember the work at the local level that goes into investigating, uncovering, and advocating for those affected by tragedies such as those we discussed on today's episode. See you at our next meeting.